Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Hey, Peter. Lori, how are you? I'm doing well, and I see you have an assortment of news to share with us today. <laughs> yes, I have a variety of uh, interesting and annoying uh, stories from around the globe. I should tell our listeners that our sound's a little different today. We are recording from our temporary bunker in a hidden location. We'll tell you more about that maybe in the future, but we're glad to be with you. And Lori, I just want to start with a good news story about Zeus. Uh, Zeus is a uh, nine-year-old pit bull dog, and he uh, was actually stolen. <gasps> and uh, Zeus lived with his uh, family in Butte, Montana. And the report is he was taken from his home. There was a house guest, a family friend that was allowed to stay in the home, and he just took the dog and left. Well, months later, this guy was found in West Virginia, more than 2,000 miles away, and he was arrested, and the dog was with him. And the uh, dog was scanned for the microchip, and the owner was identified. So, Wait, he was arrested for was stealing arrested. the dog? He was arrested for something else, and oh. was found to have the stolen dog. Mm. Yeah, you got it? Okay. So Zeus is a large dog, weighs 73 pounds, and it was thought that he was too big to fly to reunite him with his family. And so a group called Many Paws Volunteer Transport got together. They coordinated like a dog relay convoy. Relay? Dog yeah. relay? And uh, this involved at least 15 volunteers. They took turns driving the dog in little legs or long legs all the way the 2,000 miles over the course of four days. And then on December 16th, just before Christmas, Zeus was reunited with his family. Oh, how great? nice. Yeah. So all those volunteers made this reunion uh, possible. It's I really sweet. I wonder if Zeus enjoyed the travel. Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, happy ending for Zeus. Okay, Lori, this is a completely different uh, topic. This opened my eyes into another element of uh, the nastiness in horse racing. There was a hearing that took place against horse trainer related to his horse being tested positive for methamphetamine. Apparently, this is a big problem in the industry. It may be a performance enhancing, but it's very dangerous to the horses. And evidently, a lot of the people who work around stables and racetracks are on meth. There are a lot of meth heads in the horse universe. Hmm. And so, you know, after a horse wins a race or places in a, in a race, they get tested for all these uh, drugs routinely. And if they find any detectable meth, then the horse is disqualified and other consequences. And it is possible to transfer meth from a human meth person who's just got it on their body to the horse in these very minute amounts. And so the industry... Well, wait, how do you transfer it? Oh, just gets absorbed or just little particles get into the horse. There's no tolerance. There's no, if, if the test finds any meth at all in tiny nanogram concentrations, that's considered a positive test. Uh, just like there's, you know, drugs on our dollar bills and everything like right. that. There's these, it just finds it. So there, they have this thing called the accidental positive test, but still there's no tolerance uh, given. So the industry is uh, trying to deal with this. And in this particular instance, they were able to find that a horse's groom tested positive for the drug that was found in the horse's sample. And, and so horse racing is dealing with this as well. Such a corrupt industry. Yeah. 
Okay, roll on. What else you got? <laughs> roll on is right. Okay, this is a review of a published study in the journal Circulation, Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes. So this is a, a reputable thing here. The title is Dog Ownership and Survival. Dog Ownership and Survival. So... Does owning a dog or having a dog Increase help the human? Right. And okay. we've talked about this many times. Right, and right. A lot of the data is uh, suspect. And people want to believe that this is the case, that having a dog makes you healthier. And this aims to look at that. The authors did a meta-analysis, which is they found a bunch of prior studies. Ten studies were included that yielded data from more than three million human participants and they looked at the association of dog ownership for risk reduction in dying and risk reduction in having things like a coronary event. Like heart attack or stroke. Right. And uh, what they found is that dog ownership was associated with a 24% decrease in risk for any cause of death compared to non-ownership. Wow. Yeah. And notably in individuals who had had prior coronary events, that word, living in a home with a dog was associated with an even more pronounced improvement in the risk for a diet. So their conclusion, dog ownership is associated with a lower risk of death over the long term, which is possibly driven by a reduction in cardiovascular mortality. They give the required disclaimer, which is that in their meta-analysis, they were not able to account for some of the possible confounders such as socioeconomic and overall health status and other things. But still, very intriguing story. Yes, it is. Now to Florida, the Florida Keys. The reefs, the coral reefs are dying around the Florida Keys. Mm. And uh, so there is a huge program to regrow the coral in the reefs. It is called NOAA Mission Iconic Reefs, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And they have got a $100 million budget to restore the coral reefs. What they do is they grow these endangered corals and then they return them back to their native habitat where they thrive. Oh, that's so interesting. So, yeah, so you've got uh, these, these nurseries growing coral. According to one research group, half of the world's coral reefs have died in the last 30 years due to coral bleaching. And there are actually seven reefs that they are trying to save around the Florida Keys. These are so important to have healthy reefs because it's the home for so many uh, sea uh, creatures and plants. Right. And coral bleaching is due to ocean pollution and acidification? Yeah, that's my understanding. The uh, polyps, they expel algae that live inside their tissues and that causes the white color, which is why they call it bleaching, but is just a process of dying. Right. And let's go to Japan. Okay. Yay. <laughs> Remember the Fukushima earthquake and tsunami yeah. that uh, caused three nuclear meltdowns, a bunch of explosions, and a huge release of contaminated water that went everywhere, right? Uh, that caused an evacuation zone of 20 kilometers, similar to the Chernobyl uh, nu nuclear accident. So uh, there are three zones and researchers have placed 106 cameras in the various parts of the zones. In the nearest zone, humans are excluded due to the high level of contamination. 
And then there's an intermediate zone where humans are restricted. And then there is a further uh, remote zone where it's inhabited and people are allowed to remain due to the background or low levels of radiation found there. Well, they are taking photos and they're finding a lot of animals in the restricted zones. So they're thriving. They are thriving. And you know why? Because the people are gone. Right. So despite the radiation, they are seeing wild boar, they're seeing raccoons, they're seeing macaques, and they are just doing great. And the researchers are also looking at the behaviors of the animals and uh, finding that they assume they're more a natural night-day cycle when people are not around compared to when they're sort of in their space. You know, it's such a fantastic example of how when non-human animals just thrive when the humans aren't there to mm-hmm. harm them. Yeah. Similar to Chernobyl animals, it's Exactly. Right? The same thing exactly happened in uh, Chernobyl yep. in that area. We talked about that. Okay, Lori, uh, New Zealand is our next stop in this uh, little tour. This is becoming sort of a worldwide tour, isn't it's it? It's fun. Well, it turns out that in New Zealand, they deal with the same uh, rodeo cruelty issues that we deal with here in the States and in North America, and we've talked about them. And there is an animal welfare group calling for the total ban of calves being used in rodeo events. Good. This is the rope and tie event, you know, where they chase down the juvenile calf and rope the animal and really jerk it down to the ground. It's very violent. Oftentimes breaking their necks, their backs. Yeah. The uh, rodeo folks say that these are not babies. They're at least two years old, and uh, they are weaned calves. They're actually trained for this event. So therefore, it's okay. Uh, here's another quote from uh, Lyle Cox, president of the New Zealand Rodeo Cowboys Association. The contestants in this event, they have to qualify. They have to show that they can compete correctly. It's like that's the justification for, for this thing. Meaning so, the calves can compete? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I know, I know. So uh, there's a group called SAFE, and their leader, Will Appleby, is uh, calling for the banning of this event, which we agree with. They'll come up with any justification or ridiculous reason to continue what they're doing, huh? Yeah. You know, they say, oh, it conforms to the guidelines. You know, they've got some cockamaming thing, and they follow that. The so guidelines that they just, created, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. So Appleby reminds us that you wouldn't do this to your cat or dog. So so why is it okay to do it to this baby calf? It's just insane. If you have not seen videos of this event, it's really worth looking at. It's extraordinarily horrendous and violent and just terrible. Okay, we probably have time for one more news item. You got one? Okay, yes, Lori. Uh, there's a nice uh, article from Animals 24-7, Merrick Clifton's site and home, titled, Why U.S. Furriers Don't Advertise Much Anymore. Mink coat ads vanish from newsprint. So that's pretty intriguing, isn't mm-hmm. it? Well, actually, what this review article is, and it's just a history of the demise of the fur industry, really, uh, around the world, starting with the fact that there are fewer and fewer, almost no print ads containing the term mink coat or fur season. Right. Because you, you can search these things in uh, most newspapers. And uh, it's just uh, plummeting, despite the industry trying hard to keep the business alive. Some of the points Merritt makes are that the fur trade saw animal advocacy coming, yet collapsed anyhow, despite their efforts. Then California banned fur, right? So that's a big part of this thing because that will reverberate. Then there was a proposed ban of fur in New York City. This actually failed after furriers organized a coalition of Hasidic, Jewish, and black clergy to claim the ban. The proposed ban was discriminatory. So it failed for now, but that's on the way out soon. You know, a lot of the industry is based in New York City. So Discriminatory? Yeah, well, you know. 
Another highlight was that Carl Lagerfeld, the uh, designer. Yep. Okay. He is now saying any fur used will be fake. And then uh, there are other designers following his lead. Go faux fur. Right. Chinese fur production is down 15%. And another point he makes is that this company, the North American Fur Auctions, uh, is flirting with bankruptcy. So uh, it's a good chronicle of the demise of the fur industry. Great news. Ask me. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break now. And Lori, you've got some stuff for us coming up soon. Yeah, I have a couple news items. Actually, fun stuff. Political animal news. Political animal news. Okay, you're listening to Animals Today. Welcome back to Animals Today. Okay, Peter, in political animal news, socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez presumably... AOC. AOC, yes. Presumably purchased a purebred dog, specifically a French bulldog. Now, I say presumably because she refuses to answer questions about the dog's origin, whether he was adopted from a shelter or purchased from a breeder. Well, animal rights groups are not happy about what Cortez did. President of PETA, Ingrid Newkirk states, with the millions of homeless dogs out there, you apparently chose to buy a purebred puppy instead of adopting one from an animal shelter. She goes on, right this minute on Petfinder alone, there are more than 110,000 dogs, including French bulldogs who need homes. Animal shelters are bursting at the seams with hundreds of thousands more, many of whom will be put to sleep for lack of a home. French bulldogs are inbred in order to produce breed-specific traits, which cause health problems that many people who will be influenced by your purchase won't be able to afford to address, she says. She goes on, they are particularly at risk because their cute features plague them with a lifetime of breathing problems, ear and eye infections, skin irritation, a weak stomach, and other issues. Yes. On Instagram, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asked her followers to provide name suggestions saying, quote, he doesn't have a name yet. We are thinking something Star Trek related or Bronx, Queens, New York City, social good related, she states. She also states in a tweet, the goal is to train him to be a community pup. Ideally, we want to work to the point where he can enjoy town halls, be an Amtrak pup, come to the office, etc. What the hell is she doing? <laughs> Peter, should we be shaming Cortez over the pick of dogs? Of course we should. Okay. Yeah. You know, she has so many followers. Really? She could set such a great example if she had rescued a dog from a shelter and encouraging her followers to do the same. And I said the same thing about our former president. One of Obama's campaign promises was to adopt a dog, and he ended up getting a dog, Portuguese water dog, as a gift dog was from a breeder and guess what after that a lot of people wanted a portuguese water dog like the president has and they say there were no scandals in the obama administration <laughs> as you probably know peter this breed cortez got the the french bulldog has some health risks just like a lot of purebred dogs have they especially have trouble breathing and along with respiratory disorders these dogs can also suffer from spinal disorders eye diseases heart disease and joint diseases so I'll tell you, she's really going to be under the microscope when or if this dog develops health problems. We'll see how she handles them. Hide them. That's right. 
Do you know that Joe Biden has two rescue dogs? No. They're German shepherds named Champ and Major. Biden adopted Major, we reported on this last year, from the Delaware Humane Association in November after fostering the puppy for months. Major was part of a litter that was exposed to toxic chemicals before they were brought to the shelter. Beautiful dog. Have you seen a picture of Major? I don't think I've seen Major. What other familiar and currently relevant political names have rescued pets? 2020 presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg... Buttigieg, right. Buttigieg has two rescue dogs. Truman, a beagle Labrador mix, who was adopted by him and his husband in 2017. And Buddy, a one-eyed pug beagle mix, was adopted in 2018. So nice. Okay, you got to respect that. Yes. Do we judge a person by whether they choose to adopt and save a life rather than purchase from a breeder? We shouldn't, but we we do. do. What about Elizabeth Warren? You think she's the type of person who would rescue a dog? Uh, Let's see. I don't know this, but I'm going to say she's not an animal person. Nope. She doesn't rescue. She has a golden retriever named... What's one of the most popular dog names Named for Bella? Be- Bailey. Bailey. Bailey Close. Not rescued. How about Kristen Gillibrand? You know who she is, right? Yeah, yeah. You think she rescued? I'm going to say yes. No. <laughs> what kind of dog do you think Kristen oh, Gillibrand has? She's got a big, big uh, Af- Alaskan Malamute type dog. <laughs> Good guess. A Labradoodle oh, designer oh, dog. Yeah. That didn't surprise me. You know, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper? He was another 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. I think he dropped out of the race the middle of last year. He has a rescue dog named Sky. Oh. Yes, listeners might know we too have a rescue dog named Sky. Peter, you might find this interesting. When Hickenlooper was governor, he signed two measures aimed at protecting and recognizing the importance of people's pets. First was a bill called the Dog Protection Act, which was really the first of its kind in the United States. This Colorado statute requires local law enforcement to undergo training in order to prevent the shooting of dogs by local law enforcement officers in the line of duty. Specifically, the statute aims to assist in training officers to differentiate between threatening and non-threatening dog behaviors, as well as to employ non-lethal means whenever possible. The sponsor of the bill was a former Republican member of the Colorado State Senate, David Balmer. He came up with the bill after seeing a home video of a Commerce City officer shooting a lab pitbull mix named Chloe after tasing it. Yeah. The officer, who claimed the dog was a threat, was later charged with animal cruelty. And apparently there were like 40 other cases in Colorado where police officers shot and killed people's dogs when responding to calls over the prior few years. So that's one bill former Colorado Governor Hickenlooper signed. The second bill designated shelter pets as the official state pet. Okay, so enough about the 2020 presidential Democratic candidates. Something you might not know is our Vice President Pence adopted at least a couple of their prior companion animals. Pickle and Oreo, both cats. In 2017, Second Lady Karen Pence stated on Instagram when Pickle died, 
We all will miss Pickle, our very chatty, sweet kitty of 16 years. The vice president's daughter, Charlotte Pence, posted a heartfelt tribute to Pickle on Instagram. When we first rescued Pickle 15 years ago, she had been neglected, so she was scared and mean and almost never let us hold her. When we said goodbye to her last night, she was purring in my arms. Thank you, Pickle, for teaching us about how the power of love and family can change someone. Isn't that sweet? Very nice. Very nice. And earlier that year, they lost Oreo. Oreo was their 13-year-old cat. At that time, Karen Pence tweeted, Rest in peace, Oreo. You touched a lot of hearts in your little life. Our family will miss you very much. Mm. I love that she's able to make that announcement about a cat, right? Yeah, yeah. Don't you think it's more common for people to not understand your feelings or you're grieving when your cat dies and when your dog dies? Yeah. yeah. I think people are less likely to talk about the loss or death of their beloved cat than their beloved dog. Not because people love their dogs more than their cats, but the belief or fear that people will not validate your feelings when you're grieving over your cat. Just a cat? You're grieving over your cat? Which one of our ignorant physician colleagues said something like that to us, Peter? Yes, one did. I'm not going to name him. You don't want to name him on national radio? You think he's listening to the radio show about animals? I doubt it. Okay. What did he say? We're at a medical conference. You get something like you get another cat. Yeah. We got an urgent call from our pet sitter, and he said something like, oh, just get another one. It's just a cat. What an ignorant person. Anyway, Vice President Pence also had a rescue dog, a beagle. And currently, the vice president has a pet rabbit, Marlon Bundo. Hmm. Marlon Bundo has his own Instagram account. I'm assuming based on the prior rescued animals in that family that the bunny is from a rescue, but don't know for sure. Okay, Lori, that was very interesting. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, and uh, more with animals today after this break. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening. with you a really tragic story that happened locally not long ago here in Palm Springs, California. Now, I know this is not the most uplifting way to begin a show, but there are some important points my guest today is going to make that dog guardians need to hear and think about. Today, we're going to be speaking about the risks at the dog park, the risk to both your dogs and to you. So what happened is this. In our city dog park, there are two areas, one small enclosure for small dogs, and then the much larger one for the medium and large dogs. Well, the guardian of a Chihuahua mix, for unknown reasons, let her dog run free in the large dog area. And the dog was attacked and killed by a Rottweiler. Now, I have to tell you, the Rottie had been going to the dog park a few days per week for years without incident. And in fact, I personally know this dog because he has accompanied his guardian, who is my patient, to my office. This is a sweet and affectionate dog who would give me kisses and let everyone pet her. So look what happens. Something set her off at the park. She goes after a dog who should have not been in there and kills him. And before you know it, the owner of the Rottweiler is summoned to court. So to avoid that, What he did was relinquish the dog to the shelter, and who knows what happens then. 
So I would say that this could have been avoided and the owner of the small dog should be held responsible for the attack. But let's hear from a real legal authority on this. I want to welcome back to the show attorney Kenneth Phillips. Ken is a nationally renowned expert in the law pertaining to dog bites and is very interested in what happens in and around dog parks. Welcome back to the program, Ken. It's good to be here. Thank you. So, Ken, what are your initial thoughts when you hear what happened to this little dog? There was no common sense on the part of the owner of the Chihuahua. I mean, I I feel my heart is broken to hear about this accident because I owned a little Yorkie uh, myself and I was always worried about it. But, you know, to let the dog into the area of the park where the big dogs were was something that legally is referred to as assumption of the risk. Assumption of the risk is basically when you're consenting to being injured. And that's really what went on there. So, you know, this is a this is one of those owner operator errors that we we see so often when there are uh, tragedies involving dogs. Now, people and dogs really like dog parks, Ken, and generally they are considered desirable community assets. But as this event shows, there are risks involved in visiting them. Do people judge the magnitude of these risks correctly? Well, I don't think that they do. I, I think that there are that just like in any other field, there are people that are more aware and there are people that are less aware. So you have people going to dog parks that, first of all, understand what the risks are. They understand where their dog should be. They look, they watch the dog while it's out there playing to make sure no bad situation is developing. They, they have their dogs on a leash, bringing them in and out of the dog park. So they're following the rules. They're doing the right things. But then you've got the other people. And those are not only, uh, they can be people that are unreasonable in terms of how they're behaving at the dog park. They can also be people who are bringing too many dogs into the dog park. So, there, you know, there's a mix of people, and, and you just have to keep your eye open. The bottom line is that dog parks, they're great. They're good for the dogs. They're good for the people. But they are not necessarily the safest place for every dog. Right. Some dogs are just not suitable to go to the dog park, right? I mean, what characteristics in a dog don't mix well in dog park? Well, you can't bring a female in heat. Uh, You should not bring an aggressive male dog. And if you have a dog that is uh, timid about being around other dogs, timid to the point that it feels that it has to defend itself, or a dog that wants to always fight with other dogs, you should not bring that dog to the dog park. You should not be training that dog, using other people's dogs to socialize your own dog. You have to use common sense. You must not expose other people's animals and pets to risk by your own dog. So, yeah, those, those types of dogs are, are not the right dogs for a dog park. We've spoken about the people and the dogs, and I want to talk about the parks themselves. But first speak A bit about the law, Ken, where responsibility lies for avoiding accidents and bites and fights, and who or what is potentially liable for these incidents? The the rules of liability in a dog park are exactly the same as outside the dog park, with only one exception, and that is that a leash is not required. And if you look at it that way, you'll understand the whole legal concept of the dog park. The other thing to keep in mind is that 
there there is no extra protection for you in the dog park. In other words, if something happens, you can't go to the city and say, well, you owe me money because it's your dog park and my dog was killed or my dog was injured and there was a $5,000 vet bill. You, you can't do that because the dog park is a recreational area set up by the government and as such, you can't bring any kind of a claim because that's what the law is for recreational areas set up by the government. So if you if you understand that it's exactly the same set of laws as anywhere else, except that you have the uh, no, you know, you can get by without a leash, number one. And, and number two, you are assuming a certain amount of risk walking in there. That's the basic legal framework. Are dogs supposed to be free from transmissible disease and have current vaccinations to be allowed to go to dog parks? This is one of those common sense uh, things that you, you wish that people would keep in mind. And there's a whole range of, of these things. Of course, they should be free of disease uh, when, they, when they're brought into the dog park, just like they should be free of those other traits that I mentioned a second ago. And, and, they, and many dog parks will post rules. And, you know, when you violate the rules, there's another layer of, of uh, it's not law, but, but let's say it's regulation. And that is, if there are rules posted, you do have to follow those. So that does become part of, part of your obligation. Many of the dog parks do post uh, a, a notice that the dog has to be free of, of anything that, that any kind of transmittable disease or illness. How common is this, Ken, where, where a dog hurts another dog at a dog park? I hear about these things all the time because on, the, on my website, dogbitelaw.com, I have always been open for people to send me email and ask me questions and tell me about what's going on. So every day I'm hearing about some dog getting injured in a dog park. Usually it's a, it's a situation where it's a, you know, it's a smaller dog. Uh, I also hear about people getting injured in dog parks. They get, you know, uh, they get involved in breaking up a fight between their dog and another dog. That's how it usually happens. And somebody gets bitten in the process. You can get bitten by your own dog if your own dog is, is trying to defend itself and is in a panic. So I, I, do hear about, I do hear about accidents every day in dog parks. So let's talk about the dog parks as facilities. What makes a good dog park from a legal and safety perspective? And what are important deficiencies? One of the most important things is where is it located? You, you want to locate the dog park in a place where there is a sufficient parking. You want it to be downhill as opposed to uphill because of the runoff. You know, when there's, when there's rain and when they, when they turn on the sprinklers for the grass, the, the water takes whatever is in the dog park and can run it down into the neighborhood. You don't want that to happen. Uh, you want there to be uh, adequate fencing. You want there to be double gates so that, you know, the dogs can't just run out when somebody new comes into the dog park. You want it to be at a sufficient distance from residential, uh, from homes and, and even from schools because of the barking and, you know, just the general distraction that, that can occur as a result of the, uh, the dog park being there. So the, these are some of the things that have to do with location. Then after that, you want to have something like a, a committee 
that is responsible for that dog park. You want some, some people that you can actually talk to, not, not just a sign that says this is what you're not supposed to do and this is what you are supposed to do, because there should be somebody that can, that can help supervise what's going on at that dog park. And I, and I don't mean just supervise the conduct of the people that are using the dog park, but also things like are, are when the dogs dig holes, are the holes being filled in? Are there, is there enough access to water? Are the water, uh, the water fountains and spigots working? Uh, are the benches clean? That type of thing. So, so a, a good dog park, uh, there's planning with regard to the location, and then there should be people that are part of a committee or, or some other such thing that are actually paying attention to what's going on and making sure everything's clean and neat and hospitable for everyone who's using it. Very good. Don't go away. More with attorney Kenneth Phillips. He's the author of DogBiteLaw.com. We're talking about dog parks. You're listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for serious talk about animals. Animals Today covers all animal-related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. Your Animals Today Minute for today is about hummingbirds. These delightful diminutive flyers comprise more than 300 species with a range from southern Alaska to southern Chile. Thanks to their unique figure of eight pattern of wing flapping, hummingbirds can move in precise quick movements, including backwards and upside down flight. Hovering by a flower permits their long specialized tongues to reach the flower nectar before darting off to the next meal. And depending on the sugar content of the nectar, hummingbirds may consume up to their own weight of it each day. Less preferred foods include tree sap, pollen, and insects. But a lot of energy is required to sustain their metabolic rate, which is the highest of any warm-blooded animal. Their name, of course, comes from their characteristic sound produced by the rapidly flapping wings, measured at up to 80 beats per second. The smallest hummingbird, the bee hummingbird, can weigh less than two grams. That's less than a penny, and most weigh less than five grams. It's easy and fun to attract hummingbirds to your garden with easily available feeders and sugar solution. But here's a tip. They often get stuck in open garages after being attracted to the red color of the door's emergency release cord's handle. Their natural instinct to fly upwards to safety rather than horizontally out the opening can tire these little guys out. But by painting the handle a different color than red or wrapping it with black electrical tape, the birds won't wander into the garage. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Animals Today fun facts for today are about prairie dogs. 
Despite their name, prairie dogs are not dogs, but members of the rodent family, like squirrels. They grow to be between 12 and 17 inches in length, and they weigh between two and four pounds. Prairie dogs are very social rodents that live in huge underground burrows called towns, where they can be tens of thousands of prairie dogs, and their tunnels can travel for miles in every direction. Prairie dogs are very affectionate towards each other and will spend a lot of time grooming each other. They will also touch noses when they approach each other like a little kiss. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Welcome back to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We're speaking to attorney Kenneth Phillips about dog parks. Ken, what are your pet peeves when it comes to people using the dog park? I think that that one of the worst things, that, one of the things that bothers me the most is that when a person is just uh, really the wrong person for the dog park or they're bringing in the wrong kind of dog. Now, I'll tell you what I'm thinking of specifically. You could have a dog walker who is using the park, and they're using it commercially for their business, and they're bringing in too many dogs. Mm. So it's not, it's not as though we as, as taxpayers want to support that because we're supporting somebody in their business. I don't think dog walkers with a lot of dogs should be bringing them into the dog park. I think there should be a top limit of, of let's say, three dogs for a dog park. And then similar to that, you've got the, the, uh, the obedience trainer who comes into the dog park or, and is trying to you know, train a dog there. Don't do that there. That's not really what it's for because it's just not fair to everybody else. And then speaking of what's unfair to other people, you've got underage kids, in other words, who bring dogs into the dog park. A kid who can't control his dog should not be bringing that dog into the dog right. park. Similarly, on the other end of the scale, the elderly person who is making use of the dog park. I, I love the elderly. I'm getting that way myself every day. But I don't want somebody who, is, who can't control their dog to bring their dog into the dog park. Um, now, it, worse than that is the owner that drops off their dog and disappears. That's wrong because now there's nobody to watch that dog. Who's going to watch it? Everybody else? It's not our responsibility. So the owner who drops off the dog or doesn't watch the dog, I don't like. And speaking of owners, I don't go for I, not, even owning a dog if you don't have insurance. And I'm talking about either renter's insurance or homeowner's insurance. Both of those insurance policies usually cover accidents that are caused by your dog. But you have to check. You have to make sure that there's no exclusion in your policy. The way it works is if your policy doesn't mention anything about a dog, then you're fine. But if your policy mentions that it doesn't cover injuries caused by animals or injuries caused by dogs or injuries caused by your unpopular breed of dog, you got to change your insurance. So I'm, I'm completely against the, the owner who doesn't have insurance using that dog park because if something happens, who, who's going to pay? You know, the victim's going to pay. Right. Those are the main things that, that bother me in, in dog parks, the wrong people and, the wrong, and too many dogs. Ken, how do you categorize the clients you see? Explain to my listeners the, the elements of your practice. You know, there are three types of people that, that consult with me. One of them, of course, is the dog bite victim because that's the most serious 
that's the most serious type of a, of an incident between a dog and a person. But there are there are two other things that I have gotten involved in that people don't particularly know know me for. One of them is when the dog has been injured or killed. In other words, where you've brought your dog out, for example, and your dog is on a leash and some one or two dogs come running down the street and they get in a fight with your dog and now all of a sudden you have to pay $1,000 or $5,000 in vet bills. I wrote a book for that because this is a case that attorneys usually do not directly handle. I wrote a book for that called When Your Dog is Injured or Killed. And that book is is available on my website, dogbitelaw.com. And then the third type of type of case that people bring to my attention is the case where their dog is being accused of being a bad dog. In other words, they've been summoned to dog court and they are now facing penalties themselves in terms of fines or restrictions on owning a dog in the future. And their dog is facing some kind of a, of a penalty like confinement or even being taken away from them. Uh, like in the story that you told at the beginning of the show. So that is called, I, I wrote a book for that. It's called Defending Your Dog, Win Your Case in Dog Court. And Lori, I, yeah, I'm not in favor of vicious dogs. I don't want anybody who has a vicious dog to even know about my book. But for people who, who are summoned before the dog court and have to defend themselves because attorneys don't handle these cases directly because it's very expensive for the dog owner if an attorney gets involved. For people that are, are looking for justice and even people that have a bad dog of, but want to make sure that the sentence is commensurate with the crime, so to speak, those are the people that, that need this book. So those are the three things that I get consulted for. The dog bites, which is the main thing, and then when a dog is injured or killed and when a dog is being wrongfully accused. How do you define vicious? Well, vicious is, uh, that's a very good question because there's two different, uh, two different ways to define it. One, one way is the common sense way, which is that the dog, without any kind of uh, legal provocation, uh, goes after a person or an animal. That's, that is the, that's the common sense definition. And now notice that I said without a, a legal provocation. Right. There are people that will say that, uh, oh, you know, the doorbell rang and that was provocation because it caused the dog to get startled. And that's why the dog suddenly woke up and bit the little kid that was sitting next to the dog. That's not legal provocation. By legal provocation, I mean something like the dog was, was uh, defending itself or the dog was, somebody just hit the dog with something and the dog snapped at the person. Uh, so that's the common sense definition of a, of a vicious dog. Then you have the, the, a different definition, which is when the authorities have summoned somebody into dog court because of some incident that has occurred. And that incident in some, in some cities can be as little as the owner was walking too many dogs. All right. They may summon the dog owner into dog court and then label the dogs as, as being vicious or dangerous under their code in that city. So, so you have two definitions. One is the common sense definition, and the other is 
you've been labeled. You know, your dog has been labeled a vicious dog. Kenneth Phillips, thank you for educating us about dog parks and what we need to be aware of. Ken is the author of DogBiteLaw.com and will answer your email questions free at kphillips at DogBiteLaw.com. You're more than welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals.